Look in the Bible and you'll find more times and more instances where God commands the believers to pursue justice. We can't be quick to look away when injustices are happening under our noses just because it isn't personally affecting us. Proverbs chapter 21. Let me ask you all to stand as we read these three verses. Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, then the first three verses, verses 1 to 3. It says, and read it with me out loud. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You may be seated. Now, balance is important. Balancing our time, balancing our diets, balancing our our energy, our finances. But in our context tonight, balancing our understanding of who God is. There are many sermons that highlight God's love, and I find no fault in this whatsoever. God's love is pure, God's love is perfect, and is the reason why we are standing here tonight, redeemed by His blood. It was because of His love for us. Love is the attribute that we are most excited to tell other people, that we are most excited to share to others, and in many cases, love is the attribute that many need and desire to hear the most. There's a lot of people that they weren't loved. They didn't come from a family that they received love from their parents or siblings, from their friends. And so for them to hear that the creator of the universe loves them, it uplifts people. It's no coincidence that John 3.16 has become the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world. God's love is encouraging. It's uplifting. But to just preach on his love leaves us with an imbalance an incomplete understanding of who God is, and by extension, leaving us with an incomplete understanding of what is expected of us as Christians. Now, justice has always interested me. Many of the characters that I like in the shows that I've watched growing up, they always share this one common attribute. They have a high sense of justice. And I've always Even in real life, I've always had high respect for those who have a great sense of justice. You know, there's a lot of people who have very loose morality, very loose standards of right and wrong. But then there are also guys who know when to stand up for what is right. And I've always respected those who have high senses of justice. Now, a simple definition for the word is that it is the principle that people receive that which they deserve. Now, When we see guilty criminals walk away scot-free and not have to pay for the the crimes they've committed, you know, doesn't it leave a bad taste in your mouth? When a person commits a very horrible act and they get to walk away scot-free, they're not in prison for life, nothing is taken away from them, they get to walk away scot-free, doesn't that make your blood boil? The reason is because in our hearts, We want that individual that committed that crime to reap what they sowed and for justice to be served. There's two criminal cases that I'm thinking of where the perpetrators, the ones who were guilty, walked away scot-free. 
One of them is even being treated as a celebrity in the country that he originates from. And to my mind, I, 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 I just, in a way, my flesh gets upset. I get upset that people, these criminals, get, away to walk, get to walk away scot-free. And it's because all of us have this innate desire for justice to be served for those who, uh, who, who, who committed wrong crimes. However, my sense of justice, your sense of justice, is affected by a whole host of factors. Our justice is affected by our personal viewpoints. It's affected by our personal convictions. It's affected by the experiences that we've had growing up. It's affected by what we believe is morally ethical. It's affected by a whole host of factors. The act of dealing justly varies wildly from person to person. What I may find unjust, another person in another part of the world may find just. What I find just, another person in another part of the world may find unjust. All this to say that our personal sense of justice tends to be incredibly biased and flawed. Now, what about God? What about God's sense of justice? Whenever you talk about the topic of God's sense of justice, there will always be a group that will say that God's justice is flawed. That God's justice is ruthless. Why do they say that? Because specifically of some of the ways that, we, he, that he dealt with people in the Bible. And I'll mention them after our prayer. A lot of people say that God is a flawed judge, a ruthless judge. But my question is, is this really the case? Is God's justice and ruling truly unfair and inconsistent? Or is his justice reasonable and in perfect alignment with who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I preach on this a topic of your justice and your, your ability to make the wise judgments and wise rulings, and I pray that you would just give me wisdom and discernment as I, as I preach your words. Give me uh, the power to be able to preach your word as well. And I pray that you would give the congregation the understanding needed to be able to uh, look at these verses that will be mentioned and to be able to understand them. And I pray that you will ultimately work in our hearts about this idea of upholding justice as, as believers because you've commanded it to us. And I pray, Lord, for the remainder of the service, would you be with all of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So to begin with, why is it that some say that God's sense of justice is flawed? When others make this assertion, the events they often bring up are, one, they bring up the sudden death of Ananias and Sapphira. If you know the story, they lied. They essentially lied, and they, they lied specifically to the Holy Spirit, and they were struck dead. Another event they bring up is not just an event, but it's a period of time, and it was the conquest of Canaan. The Israelites had the command to utterly destroy all of the inhabitants of Canaan. Not just the warriors, mind you. Others bring up the fact that Achan's family had to be stoned to death as well for the sins of their father. Not necessarily their sins, but because of the, 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 the crime that their father committed, they had to pay. Some bring up the fact that the death penalty was given to Israelites who broke laws that we would look at as minor today. Now, adulterers, yes, they commit something very horrible, 
but we wouldn't say that they are deserving of being stoned to death. But in the case of the, the Levitical law, adulterers would be stoned to death. And a lot of people say that's what kind of punishment that God placed on the, the, the nation of Israel. And lastly, an event they always bring up is they think that God is ruthless because he is sending people to hell for all eternity for committing minor infractions. That's, again, they see it as a minor infraction, and they think that is a cruel punishment from a ruthless judge. Now, all of these above events, you can see how, this, how people can use these isolated events to make God to be a cruel, ruthless, and an unfair judge. You know, you take some of these isolated passages and take them out of the, its context and don't give the explanation for the reasoning for why they, it happened. And it makes God look like a cruel, ruthless judge. And, I, and a lot of people take these things and, and they publicly denounce the Bible. You believe this book that encourages this or this, that featured this or that, that had such a cruel punishment for certain people? You believe that? And they denounce the Bible. And a lot of times, the reason why it's so quick to denounce it is because they don't know the character of God. They use their own personal sense of justice. They impose it upon the situations that are featured in the Bible. And in their viewpoint, that was a flawed ruling. That was a flawed judgment. But in alignment with who God is, is that really a flawed judgment? So tonight, the first point I have is the key ingredients of God's justice. To better understand God's sense of justice, you need to break it apart and dissect it. And upon doing so, you'll find that there are three main components to God's justice. And it is one, His holiness, two, His mercy, and three, His omniscience. Holiness, mercy, omniscience. All, each of these three things are great contributors to God's sense of justice. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. Turn backwards from Proverbs where you were. First Samuel 2, verse 2. First Samuel 2, verse 2. And again, I'll ask you to read this verse out loud with me. It says... There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. God's holiness is one of his central attributes. A theologian has said that the holiness of God is the attribute of attributes. Another described his holiness is without a doubt the greatest or most exalted attribute of God. It has been termed the emphatic attribute the one which God would have us most remember him by. God's holiness sets him apart from any other creature and any other man in the world. He is a being, a person, completely set apart. Set apart from what? Completely set apart and free from the influences of sin, from the effects of sin, from the presence of sin. That is what it means to be holy. He is completely set apart from the things that beguile us completely free from the effects and influences of sin. In fact, it is impossible, 
It is impossible for God to sin. For him to sin makes him less than God. His holiness requires him to have this perfect standard. No matter what Satan may do to try and tempt God, it is impossible to ever cause God to sin. But this also means that because of his holiness, he has no tolerance for sin or any wicked thing. Such a perfect being cannot allow even the smallest and most minor infraction into his perfect presence. The reason why many people think that some of his judgments are unfair is because we completely underestimate how holy God is. Now, as, an, as a form of illustration, we all like to keep our, our houses clean. I think so. We want everything to be as tidied up, as, as cleaned, and as organized as, as best as we can with the time and the energy that we have. We want our houses to be, you know, for the most part, presentable. Uh, everything is just sort of, you know, uh, the, where they're supposed to be, and we want it to be tidy. We have that standard of, okay, as long as everything is presentable. That's kind of how we, the, the standard that we keep. But imagine there was a homeowner who not only kept their house clean and tidy, but they also made sure that there was not a single germ present in the entire house. Now, this person would, with a powerful magnifying glass, would scour the entire home, looking at every single nook and cranny and making sure that there was no germ present in his house. Now, we would look at that homeowner and we would think, what's wrong with a little germ here and there? There are millions of germs everywhere. We can't see them. Most of them don't affect us. Most of them are not harmful or hurtful to us. What's wrong with a little germ here or there? Why do you have to go the extra mile and make sure there's not a single germ in your house? We would think it to be excessive to try and get rid of all of the germs in a house. And we, also, we would also think that it would be impossible. Now that house owner who gets rid of all the germs represents God. And those germs that he is trying to expel and make sure that not a single one is in his presence, those germs represent sin. That's how perfect God is. To us, we can tolerate some sin. As long as everything looks presentable, as long as everything looks tidy enough and clean enough, that's fine for us. As long as everything is where, it's ought, where it ought to be, it's fine for us. We don't look at the little details. We don't look at the corners and sweep off the, the, the dust and the, the little nooks and crannies. We don't care about perfection. We only quit, uh, we're only seeking to be good enough. But to God... He doesn't want to just be good enough. He is perfectly holy. God cannot tolerate any sin of any size. Big sins, small sins. God is impartial. He hates all sin. That's what makes God, in my opinion, an impeccable judge. He has a perfect standard for morality. That's what makes a good earthly judge. Someone who has a pretty good sense of morality they'll probably be a great judge or a decent judge. But God has a perfect standard for morality. 
even if it is one of his children who mess up, even if it is his chosen nation who messes up, if they commit a sin, his holiness demands that sin to be dealt with in a way that he sees fit. So that's the first component of his, of his justice, is his perfect holiness. Now turn with me to Lamentations. Lamentations. And let's look at the second component. Now let's read this out loud together. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. I think I went too early there. But it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. This verse reveals the importance of God's mercy. As the verse says, it is because of his mercy that we are not consumed. In light of God's holiness, what do we deserve as sinners? Not just, we're not just sinners who commit minor infractions here and now. We're people who are always consistently messing up, consistently sinning and transgressing again against the creator of the universe. What do we deserve as sinners? To be punished for the things that we did. What we view as minor and, 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 and minuscule, God doesn't see it that way. A sin is a sin. What do we deserve as sinners to be punished for our sins? But, what, but why does it seem that we can get away with sin nowadays? Well, it's because God has mercy on us. On average, how many sins do you think you commit every year? There's no way of possibly counting that because sometimes we're committing something wrong even when we're not aware of it. How many sins do you believe you commit every year in your lifetime? Now, it will vary from person to person, but the number will be quite high. But though we sin so much, though we sin so frequently, and though we sin so persistently, why is it that we are not punished more often? Well, it's because of God's mercy. It is because of God's mercy that, that we are not consumed. As a judge, he has mercy on us. Now the question we ask now is, why didn't he have mercy on the Israelites? Why does it seem that God was so much more ruthless in the Old Testament? In the New Testament, he seems to be much more lenient, filled with grace, filled with mercy on the people. They can mess up and God doesn't deal with them as harshly. But why is it in the Old Testament that it seemed he was so merciless? Why wasn't there no mercy at the Old, in the Old Testament? Well, the answer is that he did have mercy towards them. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. It says there, he keepeth mercy to them that love him and keep his commandments. There's kind of a condition there. He will keep mercy, he will give them mercy if that nation gives love and, and, and obedience back and, and, re, and, and reflects love and obedience back to him. Oftentimes, the nation of Israel would go through harsh trials and punishments because of the fact that they committed grave sins again and again. And in our Sunday school class, we talked about the cycle that the, that the Israel kept repeating during the time of the judges. The cycle goes like this. 
Israel, they fall into idolatry. They, they, they completely disobeyed God. They didn't expel all the Canaanites. And so they started mingling with, with the gods of, with the Canaanites that lived in the land. And they started worshiping those gods, Baal, Asherah. And they started worshiping those gods and doing the things that the others were doing. They started sacrificing their children to Asheroth uh, in the flames. They started committing sexual immoralities for the sake of Baal. They started doing all of these sexual, all these sinful things when they became idolatrous. What did God do? God punishes them. God punishes them for being idolatrous. God raises up a, a, an enemy to oppose the nation of Israel. And with, when this enemy comes, what does Israel do? Israel cries for help. Israel asks God to deliver them from their present enemies. Then God raises up a judge to deliver them. Israel, they praise God and thank God that they were saved from their present uh, problems. But after this time of comfort, after God has delivered them from, from the, the enemy that was plaguing them, they enjoy a time of peace, they enjoy a time of comfort, but soon enough, they get comfortable, they get complacent, and they repeat the exact same cycle again. They start following after the gods, and their cycle repeats. The reason why God dealt so harshly with Israel is because a lot of the sins they committed were very abominable in the sight of God. Who knows how many punishments God has had to withhold for Israel? And who knows how many punishments He has withheld for us? Both Christians and Israelites were worthy of, were, were deserving of much more punishment and judgment. But it is this mercy and long suffering that stays His hand. God isn't ruthless in His ruling. In the last component here is in Hebrews 13. Turn with me there. So we have His holiness, a perfect standard of, of morality. It is impossible for Him to sin. He's incredibly merciful, preserving us from all the things that we deserve. And in Hebrews 4.13, it says, we find a third component. uh, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We are naked in the sight of God meaning we can't hide anything from God. Our true intentions are seen. I can go up to a person, I can lie to them, and there's a high chance that I could get away with it. They, a lot of times, they will often take the face value words, the words that I'm saying at face value, and they'll believe me. They won't see my true intentions. But when we try to pull that with God, it doesn't work. Because we are naked in his sight. He, doesn't, he completely sees through the outward things we're saying and sees our true intentions. Information that we never told anyone will be known by him. And even more so, he knows the actions that we will be taking. And again, this is not to say that God predetermines the actions that we take in life. He doesn't, he's given us free will to decide our own, uh, what we do with our lives. But nevertheless, God knows our futures. God knows our intention. God knows the things that we never tell on others. A judge, before making a final ruling, they depend on the information that the lawyers are able to compile. The lawyers, that's their job. They're supposed to make a compelling case for or against the person on trial. 
and the, the judge is, is depending on that information that they're gathering. If the evidence is convincing, if the evidence is legitimate, it makes the case easier to con uh, conclude. The information given will either prove that the one on trial is guilty or innocent. Good information is vital for the judge. They can't make a conclusive final declaration if the, if the evidence isn't up to par. But God, as the perfect judge, has all the information he needs. He doesn't, he doesn't have to rely on a lawyer to, to compile the information. He knows everything. He is omniscient. He can take one look at our hearts and know everything there is to know. When we stand before him, when we face him, we might as well be transparent. So regarding some of his judgments in the Bible that we seem to think are unfair or ruthless, are we sure about that? Are, are these judgments truly ruthless or unfair? Because we only know what we're told in Scripture. We only know the, 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 the words that, are, that we have today. But God knows everything about those specific situations that we have trouble understanding. Who are we to tell an all-knowing God what his ruling should be like? In Romans 11.34, it says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Have you ever known the mind of the Lord? Have you, do you have the, the ability, the capability to, to give God, the mighty God, counsel? Are you able to give him say on a matter? We're not, we can't. We're finite. The difference in between us and God is vast. There is no man who knows the mind of God. There is no man who can counsel the Lord God. Again, I'm not a parent, but young, young, young children, they often ask their parents why they're imposing certain rules in the household. The kid is asking, why, why do we do such and such? Why do we have to have a curfew? Why do we have to uh, avoid certain things, dad or mom? And they're always asking why. And they don't understand it. Even if they're given the explanation, the kid doesn't understand. But the parent who is imposing that rule, they from experience understand the importance of that personal rule they've given in their household. They understand the consequences of not having that particular rule. They understand. There's a gap in the understanding of the child and the understanding of the parent. And similarly, we often ask the same questions to God. God, why did you do such and such in, in this passage? God, why did you do such and such to Ananias and Sapphira? Why did you have to deal with the Canaanites in this matter? Why do you have to uh, give this sort of, uh, sort of judgment to these people? We often ask the same questions to God. But the distance between our understanding is so incredibly vast that it is hard for us to comp comprehend his reasoning for doing certain things in the Bible. I myself, I've debated for a long time about certain things, certain events, certain stories in the Bible. I longed for, for a while, when I was younger, in my teenage years, I would look at certain events and think, why did God choose to do, do this? Why did God choose to kill off all of them? When expelling the Canaanites, why didn't he just order the soldiers to be killed off. And again, so, so on and so forth. There's some stories in the Bible that for us, it's so incredibly difficult for us to comprehend why God's justice has led him to that specific conclusion. And I struggled with that for a long time. And you know, I'm not going to stand here and say that I have all the definitive answers to, to, to persuade you that 
what God did in this instance was, uh, was the, what made complete sense. I don't have all the answers. But as I mature, what I've come to realize is that I just have to trust in who God is. Because He is perfectly holy, because He is exceedingly merciful, and because He knows everything there is to know, information that I've never, I've never known, because of these three components, I can trust that He is a perfect judge and the things that He's done in the Bible was, perfect, was a perfect conclusion to whatever he, he knew about that specific situation. God is a perfect judge. And now I end this sermon with, with this second point. We looked at the key components that comprise God's justice, but the second point here is the command for Christians to uphold justice. We have to now reel the sermon back to us. God defines and exemplifies what biblical justice is supposed to be like. So as a Christian, we have the responsibility to uphold justice as well. In the verse that we started off with, in Proverbs 21.3, it says, to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And we see this better explained in Luke 11.42. But woe unto you Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Essentially, the Pharisees were quick to perform outward acts like sacrifices. And we know the, the pedigree of the, 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 the Pharisees. A lot of the reasons why they were so faithful in doing the outward works is because they like, they like people praising them. They like attracting attention to themselves. That's why they love the outward works. But Jesus is telling them, yes, you tithe, but you pass over judgment and the love of God. When it came to their inward character, they failed to be upholders of justice and judgment. In this specific instance, I'm not talking about judgment of, of striking down wrath upon those who are erring in the Christian walk. That is not the justice specifically that God is talking about here. This is the judgment, justice that is in alignment with the love, of a, the love that a Christian is supposed to have for others. The Pharisees, they were good at tithing. They memorized the law. They, if you ask for a specific area of the Old Testament, they can recite it perfectly to you. But how did the Pharisees treat the poor? How did the Pharisees treat Gentiles, people who were not like them? How did they treat the widows? God is wanting Christians to be upholders of justice. What do acts of justice look like for us? Well, in Psalm 82.3, it says, Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. In Isaiah 1.17, it says, Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Look at all the groups that were listed in those two passages. We have the poor, we have the fatherless, we have the afflicted, people who have some sort of Ill, sickness or ailment that prevents them from living a normal life. We have the needy, we have the oppressed, we have the widows. You know, we often overlook these six groups, and there are many more uh, groups that are mentioned in the Bible, but we often overlook the poor. We often overlook the fatherless, the afflicted, the needy, the oppressed, and the widow. 
Oftentimes, we overlook these needy groups because we, are, we ourselves, we can identify with any of them. Thankfully, by the grace of God, a lot of us were able to grow up in a, in a pretty good environment. I'm not, I'm not, that's not to say that all of us grew up in a healthy environment, but a good majority of us did. And so we, because of what we are as an individual, we, we overlook the people who are suffering. But the poor the fatherless, the afflicted, the needy, the oppressed and the widow, all of these groups need encouragement. They need special attention from Christians. Today, there's a whole host, when you say the word justice, there's a whole host of social justice issues that pop up. And we often choose to stay quiet or be apathetic towards them. But as Christians, we are called to be involved in issues of justice. This, these two verses that I mentioned are not just isolated verses that I just took out of context about justice. Look in the Bible and you'll find more times and more instances where God commands the believers to pursue justice. We can't be quick to look away when injustices are happening under our noses just because it isn't personally affecting us. That's what being selfless is like. Even when you're not the one personally suffering or going through the oppression or, or the, the injustice, you're still willing to help out the person who are affected. That's what it means to be someone who defends justice. When people are getting, when people are getting taken advantage of, do you look the other way since it doesn't concern you? Maybe in school when people are getting bullied, for the, the teens here, for the kids here, when, when other kids are getting bullied, do you choose to stay quiet? Do you choose to even join in on the fun and start bullying the poor kid? When the rest of the world are quick to trample and make fun of the poor and needy, we look at them, uh, the majority of the world, they look at these poor, the homeless, as, as the dregs of society. They, they are con very condescending towards those, that, that group of people. But as a Christian, don't be like the world. If the world treats the homeless a certain way, as Christians, we need to treat them to a higher standard. Be loving to them. Do what you can for them. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he was quick to address injustices that was present in the Roman culture that he was present in. Now, as an important note, as a side note, I just wanted to say that the main responsibility of Christians is not to be social justice warriors. Nor are we, are we to support every social issue because not every social issue we, are, we agree with, you know? But we need to have discernment and wisdom for what we choose to support. As believers, we must be men and women of justice to be individuals who stand up for others, to stand up for people that no one else is standing up for. Helping people, and this is the, the, the biggest takeaway of this as well, helping people when they have been dealt with unjustly will open up doors and opportunities for you to witness and better share the gospel with them. In The Preacher's Delight in Tacoma, Washington, the very, the, the, the message that really spoke to my heart was the one on soul winning. And I look at myself and I look at my personal 
my life last year and even just the previous, just the, the past years, I look at my soul winning efforts and I found them to be mediocre. I'm, I'm always trying to act, I'm always hoping that God will just providentially place an easy uh, opportunity in front of me. I'm not seeking out uh, soul winning opportunities. But the thing is, for me, I'm starting to realize that for me to better share the gospel to others, maybe it requires me to be more just, to help others when they are facing injustices. Because maybe those opportunities of me helping them will open up doors for me to share the gospel with them. As the famous saying by Roosevelt goes, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Ah, yeah, yeah, you're struggling with this or that, but here's the gospel. Nah, I don't care about your problem, but here's the gospel. How do, you think they'll t- how do you think they'll receive the gospel that way? You just completely disregarded the problems they were going through, and now you expect them to be open to receiving the gospel? But supposing you listen to their problems, supposing you helped them in the best way that you can, you lent out a hand, a helping hand, and you were willing to listen and really contemplate with the things that they were saying. Now, when you go to share the gospel, they can see that you actually care for them. That you just don't see them as another faceless NPC, but you actually see them as a person with a a unique soul, a person that has a unique life, and a person that needs help. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Jesus was a man of justice, and so let us follow after his example. God gave us a standard for justice. And though we don't fully understand why he did certain things, we can trust his character. And when we understand his sense of justice, we can better follow after his example. We need to be men and women of action who will stand up for others. A quote here, throughout history, it has been the inaction of those who could have acted, the indifference of those who should have known better, the silence of the voice of justice when it mattered most that has made it possible for evil to triumph. Don't be a Christian that would fall into this category of, of being indifferent, apathetic, inactive for things that, for injustices. Be vocal and use the testimony and the, your, your influence as much as you can. We need more Christians who are willing to obey God's command and to be upholders of justice. And in doing so, we open more opportunities for gospel seeds to be planted. And I end with this verse in the Bible to describe our role in, this society, in society, really. Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Pastor Tim. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.